This podcast is intended for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised. On August 4th, 1974, the night of Fred Carrasco's infamous shootout with the Texas Rangers, a teenager back in San Antonio, Rudy Gutierrez, was staying up late. We saw it on TV. And if you remember, at those times, the news would be at 10 o'clock. And there was not much else to do but see the news if you stayed up that late. So I know that when he... I believe when he died, the news came out when we were already going to bed. You might recognize Rudy from episode three when he talked about the corridos his dad wrote. My father, Salome Gutierrez, was a musician, a composer with over 700 songs recorded. He owned his own record label. Rudy might have been awake, but his dad, Salome, was fast asleep. My mother woke up my father, told him what had happened. He searched the radio for broadcasts of the news. He sat down to write his corrido. That first uh, news flash that's coming out, that's what you're writing down. My father is a very prolific writer. So he would be the first one to tell you that he could write a song start to finish in about 45 minutes. He went out to look for musicians in uh, nightclubs. He brought them to his studio, recorded the song, and had it at the radio station by 6 in the morning. By the time folks in San Antonio were driving to work that morning, they were listening to La Muerte de Fred Gomez Carrasco, the latest hit from Salome Gutierrez, conceived and executed in a matter of hours. His brain works a lot faster than ours ever did. And and he has a command of the language that he is performing in. He plays multiple instruments. He's a sound engineer. So there is no way to compete with him, you know. And he's a perfectionist. So normally by the time that he found the musicians, Everything was already set to music. All the musicians had to do was not mess up the song when he recorded. But there was no remakes, no rewrites. The way he finished it, that was the only time he wrote it. Because of the rhythm of the music and how everything has to flow, you have to choose the words that you use correctly. Then, uh, for the most part, in my father's case, he tries to be true to what he heard. And some people romanticize it. Later on, you know, it's like uh, the valiant uh, Hispanic who will not be subjugated. But that's more for Hollywood. That's not how it was actually seen. It was just something unbelievable at the time. After playing on Spanish radio stations all day, the latest Carrasco Corrido would get even wider distribution that same night, as writer Greg Barrios remembers. By the evening, 
they would get an actual vinyl disc, 45, distribute them to all the cantinas and mom and pop restaurants that had these rocolas. So that evening, while the incendiary headlines in the local newspapers were screaming about this terrible man, they were listening to the exploits of this folk hero as they rested and ate and had a few beers and it created conversation within the community. And hence the legend grew. El sábado 3 de agosto del año 74 en la prisión del estado mataron a Carrasco lo aclirearon a tiros en compañía de otros cuatro un año tenía en la cárcel sentenciado de por vida Carrasco's rise and fall coincided with the growing Chicano rights movement it was a lot like the Black Power movement. Mexican-Americans were fighting racism, getting back to their cultural roots, and looking for heroes. We were at a point in uh, Mexican-American civil rights where, you know, we needed to present our story, you know. Our story, in a way, was, you know, that uh, many of our heroes were not in the history books. And, of course, uh, Carrasco was an infamous character and perhaps not uh, on the right side of the law, but then so were a lot of people that were subject to the discrimination and the search and seizure and uh, racial stops, you know, like we have in our country still. And uh, so they could identify with that. And uh, the fact that he was in a sense, bigger than life, uh, made him a guy who had uh, gone against the man, so to speak. And I think that that's important to, to realize that what the newspaper was saying, the, the official newspaper was saying, and what the community was saying were two different things. I don't think that that is, characterizes him as a hero I think he was more of a, uh, in, in the greater culture, perhaps, you know, people like uh, Bonnie and Clyde are glorified. Billy the Kid, and you know, they're outlaws and, and yet their legend and films about them uh, are, you know, bigger than life and people kind of sympathize with them. On the flip side, for a person like Ben Aguilar, the Huntsville prison employee, corridos about Carrasco just rubbed him the wrong way. When I was growing up in the Hispanic community, you know, we heard corridos about different heroes in Mexico, like uh, about Pancho Villa and about Revolutionary War uh, heroes in Mexico, and they always sing about them. It was just a typical thing to happen, to write a, a ballad or corrido about Fred Carrasco. They try to turn him into a hero, really. Although Ben was from East Texas, which didn't have a large Mexican-American population at the time, his wife, Chris, grew up in South Texas, in the Rio Grande Valley, where the Tex meets the Mex, as the saying goes. We would go down to, to visit my in-laws, and, and uh, we'd walk down the street there, and there was 
some uh, cantinas, you know, the, 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 the beer joints. And you could hear the music blaring, you could hear and singing about Fred Carrasco. And I said, oh, they're sing singing about him already. They had made up songs about him. So I, I knew that was going on. That's their hero, I guess. I thought that was wrong. I thought, I don't think the guy was not a hero at all. He had murdered those women in cold blood. Carrasco became a hero to us, some of them because he, he stood up against the white man. It's always been that way with uh, Hispanic people in the valley in South Texas because they, were, they, they felt like they were oppressed. They were uh, oppressed uh, people. The only way they could make a living was to work for the man in, in those farms and ranches down in there. And the rangers were pretty tough on them back in those days. You know, Texas rangers were were known as a brutal uh, law enforcement group down there. So they, you know, if you stood up to a ranger, you were a big tough guy. The ranger, the ranger was the man. If you stood up to him, you killed the ranger, and then you, you were, you were it. If you got shot by a ranger, then you, you were a hero. We're standing up against them. It just. That's the way they are. Uh, I, I didn't have any sympathy for that, but... A hero or a monster? In the final episode, we'll look at Fred Carrasco's complicated legacy, it might not be what you think, and the unbelievable turn Rosa Carrasco took after her husband's death. From Imperative Entertainment, I'm Wes Ferguson. This is Standoff. That old white-haired judge in Dallas didn't pay my story no mind Taking me down to Huntsville I'm bringing in a load of time They caught me on a caper that I planned for days And proved everything I'd done I'm on my way but I'm looking for a chance to run. Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford anything, wherever you listen. This is Chapter 10, Rosa's Redemption. Fred Carrasco's notoriety got a lot of people obsessed. What did we miss? How did this guy become that guy? Suddenly, everybody was poring over clues from Carrasco's meager origins, the people and place that shaped him. They wanted to know how Carrasco was able to leave a mark that, believe it or not, is still being felt to this day. To get to the bottom of this story, we've got to go back way back, to the 50s and 60s, before Carrasco's rise to power. In those days, street gangs in San Antonio were kind of innocent. You know, they were like just local, I guess, fraternities and, and sororities, if you will, based in poor parts of town. 
Mike Tapia is the author of Barrio Gangs of San Antonio. You know, it was about camaraderie and turf and, you know, style. <laughs> you know, like the style of dress was bragging rights. I think it was a simpler time, you know, more benign types of activities that poor street corner kids engaged in. Mike introduced me to some of the old gang members he met through his research. Like this guy Richard Arajo. Richard is 82 years old. You know, every gang needs a good name. Something from the streets. A name that will strike fear in the hearts of their rivals. You know, we're going to change our names, so we decided on a dot. <laughs> Everybody put a little dot on their ankle. You know? That's how I changed the name. So it was a dot gang. That's right. The big, bad dot gang. Because they all wore a dot of ink on their ankles. And there was no pot or nothing like that. We just, we just hang around. And they all followed me around, so we went back and forth. They didn't drink or nothing. We just hang around. No booze. No drugs. The worst trouble the Dot Gang ever got into was scrapping with dudes from other neighborhoods. They had him again in the corner from the circle with a knife in his throat. So I came out and I saw him. I jumped like in the movies. I jumped on the table and jumped on top of him. A big old fight. And in that fight, I got stabbed. I didn't even know it. I got stepped on the side. And then uh, finally, some guy pulled me out and, and he said, Hey, I got blood in my hand, but it's my blood. He also took a bullet one time. And I had a stick in my hand, and I start swinging, and pow, it shot me, shot me in the shoulder. It right underneath my collarbone. And got in and see nothing, it just went right through. But it was very, everybody all excited and all shocked about it because guns were very rare. Knives was another thing. Except for the occasional battle scar, gang stories from San Antonio's elder statesmen sound kind of fun. Boys will be boys stuff. Fred Carrasco was born into this world on February 10th, 1940. My dad's family, it's crazy because they didn't come from money, but they had these values. Carrasco's daughter, Leticia, says Fred's folks ran a brothel in San Antonio. My grandparents, they instilled values in us, you know, and it's crazy because, I mean, you would think, right? I mean, my dad's parents, but no. My mother, my grandmother, she was a, what do they call them, a madame? She had hookers prostitutes that worked for her. Uh, my grandfather had the, the bar, and they worked together. Yeah, my grandma was something else. And she would put everybody in their place. She was a very strong, opinionated woman. And my grandfather was crazy. It was like he was a submissive one. She controlled everything. She was the one that dominated that relationship. You could tell. Carrasco took after his mom. He was sharp. Real mischievous. <laughs> yeah. Like wanting to know everything. Um, always, you know, he was always a leader, even as a kid. So it wasn't something that just happened, you know. Even as a kid, he was already a leader. My dad was really smart um, for everything, you know. I mean, he, he was just, it just came natural to him. You would not know it, you know, on how intelligent he was that he had gone up to the sixth grade. After dropping out of school in 52, Fred became a butcher. He also handled produce, washed dishes, and worked as a cook. All his life, cooking and fine dining would be his passions. On the streets, though, Carrasco was a tough guy. He carried not one, but two knives. They live about two blocks from where we live. That's Richard again, of Dot Gang fame. But he was a little fat guy. When I saw him, he was out there arguing with some other guy. Richard remembers Fred Carrasco as a neighborhood bully. 
Some say he was a tyrant who terrorized the playground of the local housing project where he grew up. But another guy from around the barrio, this fellow named Henry Rodriguez, came away with a different impression. You know, he was a chubby, kind of a light-complexion kid waiting around, but he talked big already. He had signs of, you know, someday, you know, going into something. The origin story of Fred Carrasco, the myth, if you will, doesn't really add up with the official record. His rap sheet makes him look like nothing more than a petty criminal. Carrasco was 15 years old the first time he got arrested. Police accused him of shoplifting an item that cost less than five bucks. The authorities picked him up several more times for a variety of offenses. Most came down to being drunk and belligerent or threatening people. Eventually, Fred's crimes landed him in a juvenile detention facility in the Texas countryside, 160 miles north of San Antonio. Fred was locked up. No problem. In the first of a lifelong pattern for Carrasco, he simply decided to break out. Fred and a fellow escapee started the long walk back to San Antonio. Much later, Carrasco would write a jailhouse diary that described the adventure. It's sort of like that uh, brother who art thou. And it's also like Bonnie and Clyde, where they would go from these ranches for people to seek shelter and help. And everywhere that Carrasco went with his friend that escaped with him, people were open to him. In fact, one of the people that uh, he knocked on their door, they saw who they were and gave them a few bucks and said, next time, use a better disguise. And these were white people. Greg Barrios, a writer from South Texas, got his hands on a copy of the journal from a San Antonio lawyer. Although Greg wouldn't let me see the diary, he says it shows a softer side of Carrasco. And another ranch, they had dinner and prayer before dinner. And uh, Carrasco writes in the diary, finer people have I never met. And, you know, it's like these people would let two young thugs in their house and they have dinner with them. And they didn't seem to feel that that was out of the ordinary order of things. But they were compassionate people. In 1958, Carrasco killed a man for the first time, the first of many. When he was 18, he shot another teenager at a junior high graduation dance on San Antonio's South Alamo Street. Carrasco stole a car and went on the run. He made it to the Mexican border, but was caught later that year and was sentenced to prison. He actually served in the Walls Unit in Huntsville. Around this time, guns were beginning to flood America's streets. Also growing was America's appetite for drugs. With gang members moving dope on the streets, tussles between your rivals suddenly meant a lot more. Real money was on the line. It was a lot more at stake. Uh, people could get rich quickly by dealing drugs. And so there, it, it created some competition for um, those black markets, you know, in places like the ghetto and the barrio. And that's where, you know, turf starts to become uh, important in a, in a more uh, sinister way than, you know, when street corner boys are claiming turf for pride. And the criminals had their own version of graduate school, prison. There was also an incarceration binge, you know, that came with uh, to supposedly stop the flow of drugs. And so these kids went away for a long time for trafficking drugs and, um, and became more sophisticated criminals. And then, you know, so 
the advent of prison gangs in the 70s and 80s just really augmented and made these types of group formations a lot more insidious. When Carrasco finally got out, he went right back in for selling heroin, this time to federal prison. Six years for selling one gram of heroin, or about 20 hits of smack. In the pen, Carrasco learned the ins and outs of the drug game and made the connections that would serve him back on the outside, where his career would really begin to take off. But Carrasco wasn't like the other drug bosses who came before him. He was pretty brutal in his tactics, and when you crossed him, he wanted to dominate the South Texas drug market and its distribution in the Vargas. So the way he executed that, no pun intended, right? The way he went about that was put a message out there. The guy had resources. After he rose to be a bigwig in the South Texas drug industry, he could hire hitmen and and order them to be merciless and send a message. And Those tactics were, were new to the barrio, and he was the first to use them in San Antonio in the 60s and then escalating through the 70s. Goodbye, Dot Gang. Hello, murderous drug lord. The next generation was watching and learning. Mike Tapia draws a line from Carrasco in the 70s to the explosion of gang violence that followed. The prison gang leaders and members of the 1980s, when their advent occurred in the 80s, well, they were kids growing up in San Antonio's Barrios, you know, when Fred was doing his thing. So they took notice. In order to win in this game, the group that exerted the most brutality was going to be top dog, you know, so it just kind of paved the road for that type of culture and thinking. And it was out of the norm, you know, Mexican-American communities historically have been relatively nonviolent places. Most folks think that the barrio has always been violent, but it, it really hasn't. It was a bit out of the ordinary for, for Carrasco to take it to that level, to escalate the level of violence for drug debt and stuff like that. And after the incarceration binge and these groups, you know, start to form in prisons, then they start to take on that character as well. In other words, not only did Fred Carrasco enter the history books as the orchestrator of the Huntsville prison siege, he's also the father of modern gang warfare. Not long after Carrasco's death, the Chicano Times newspaper in San Antonio had an article titled Federico Gomez Carrasco, a hero? or a criminal. It's interesting because it really grapples with the contradictions in how people see Carrasco. The article notes that he wasn't just a passive victim of events. Carrasco may be a criminal, but he has exhibited other traits which men have admired in men for centuries. These include intelligence, daring, courage, and chivalry. While some people may feel that it is inappropriate to comment on the attributes of convicted criminals, it does not necessarily negate their existence. Carrasco never had an opportunity to be honest, and the law in Texas sure didn't give a damn about Chicanos. Here's Greg Barrios reading a favorite passage from the book Quixote Soldiers, a book about the Chicano movement. The flawed journey of Fred Gomez Carrasco is rather apparent. His drug organization tranquilized hundreds in San Antonio and South Texas through heroin addiction which had a direct impact on street youths. Just as tragic, perhaps, was the loss at an early age of Carrasco's potential leadership. 
Born in the West Side, Carrasco was seen by many in his barrio as a boy genius who went bad due to life circumstances. Relatively unknown outside the drug underworld, for a week in 1974, he became a household name in the state and the nation when he attempted to break out from Huntsville Penitentiary. By orchestrating his own death, Carrasco ensured that he would not be dismissed simply as a ruthless drug lord. A boy genius who became a criminal, one of the costs of poverty and segregation. Is that true? Was Fred Carrasco a victim of circumstances? Let's ask his daughter. Yeah, he would have never gone straight. That would have never happened. He had it in him from a very young age that he was who he was, that it wasn't something that just grew in, you know. He just became this person because he started selling drugs. He was already that person. Fred Carrasco's daughter, Leticia, believes her father was destined for a life of crime. Well, it's the same thing why he didn't want to stay in prison, because he could have done his time. He just felt that that wasn't a place for him. He knew the odds were against him making it out. He had 5%. 5%? Somehow, Fred believed those were his odds of busting out of prison. So he knew that he wasn't willing to stay there. He said, you know, these people are not going to control me. And that's why he chose to still try to get out. So to me, it was kind of what we call it today, right? Um, what do they call it? Suicide by cop? That's what I think it was. That he knew. But he didn't want to live there. You know, he knew that this was not going to stop just because he got, you know, put in prison. It was gonna continue and it, it, it just, and then I think as he knew all the harm he had done, it was never gonna stop. The prison time, the harassment, the always looking over your shoulder, he would have never been a free man. And that's why he chose to, I believe, like I said, that it was suicide by cop. And that he'd rather just end it instead of dragging it on. Yeah, they were on the phone and you know, he ran it by her, you know, the chances of him being able to make it out. And he said, you know, they're telling me 5%. And my mom said, don't do it. And he said, no, he already had made up his mind. So it wasn't like he was, it was open for discussion. In the days after Carrasco's death, his parents never got a chance to say goodbye. It was kind of fishy the way the whole thing went down. I'm going to tell you, there was something going on there. So I don't know whatever day he passed on. I'd say it was a Monday. They, they called my grandparents and they said, hey, you know, your son's dead and we need you to come identify the body. And that was Monday, right? So they pack up, get ready, take off over there. They get there on Tuesday morning and they said, oh no, the body's already been shipped. Shipped where? To the funeral home. They get to the funeral home and they said, oh no, the, the body's already been buried. So they didn't get to identify the body, didn't get to attend no funeral. Everything was done before anything. So nobody got to go. Why the rush job to get Carrasco into the ground? Leticia thinks the secrecy was because law enforcement was still afraid of Carrasco's associates. And we think it goes back to the Texas Rangers. Today I can look back and, and empathize with them, right? Because if that would be me, you know, I'd be scared of this man that was ruthless. And what if he comes after me, you know, for doing my job? And that's where I think it all comes down to. Um, 
can't see what else it could be, you know. But yeah, they didn't get to identify the body. They didn't get to go to the funeral. Federico Gomez Carrasco was buried on August 7th, 1974, less than three days after the siege ended, in an unmarked grave in San Antonio. Some funeral home employees and Carrasco's attorney, Jimmy Gillespie, were the only people there. Rosa was told that Carrasco died, but she didn't believe it. She was convinced that he pulled off the escape, that he was coming back for her. But things were still hot in the United States. My mom was facing the death penalty. So Rosa hid and waited in Mexico. A fugitive from justice in the United States, she settled in a mansion in Guanajuato, a colonial silver mining city in the Sierra Madres. Fred Carrasco had never used drugs. Now, despite her lavish lifestyle, Rosa began sampling from her husband's stash. We had maids there. That was a good thing, we had maids. But, you know, yeah, my mom was out using. We had a beautiful home there. It was, okay, the previous residence was a president from Guanajuato, so it was a beautiful home. Oh, it was beautiful. It had this big, big fence in the front, like this stone fence. I'm gonna say maybe like 10, 12 feet high, big gate to get into. My mom would forget to leave me the key and I would have to climb over it. My brother would wait on the other side and I was the brave one. I was the one that climbed over, get in, let us in, and we'd go in. You know, once you got into the gate, it had like, you know, this really pretty, like a rock garden. And then you would go in and the first thing you would see, it was this beautiful staircase that wind to go up to the second floor. It was beautiful, beautiful house. I mean, everywhere we lived in, we always had beautiful mansions, crazy. But we could never keep anything because we were always running. So, you know, we would have it for a little while and then we'd have to leave it behind. Um, that one there, we were there on that one, few years, I guess. And then from there, we ended up homeless in Matamoros, because we were trying to make our way here, and we ended up homeless, panhandling. Matamoros is a border city right across from Brownsville at the southern tip of Texas. They were so close to home, but they were stuck on the wrong side. I remember us being out on the street, <laughs> um, living in this like one bedroom apartment on top of some bar, and we would have to go out every day, you know, to panhandle. Uh, and, you know, my mom would make the story up that we needed money so we could make it back to the States because we were stranded there. And all of us would go out there. The drug money in Texas wasn't getting to Rosa in Mexico. Well, her connection here wasn't sending her the money that she was supposed to have. And, you know, she didn't want to cross over because she was on the run, um, and the money just wasn't coming in. So because the money wasn't coming in, she didn't have any other alternative. She lost everything. Eventually, Rosa's parents sent her cash to get home. A private investigator from San Antonio flew Rosa and the kids in his little private plane across the border to Texas. It was time to face the Texas legal system. Then, Rosa finally caught a break. For not the first time, prosecutors dropped the charges. She was acquitted. There wasn't enough evidence, but she gave everything up. So even though we were penniless in Mexico, we had everything here. <laughs> yeah, because we had big bank accounts, me and my brother, you know, our savings. My dad had made us, you know, savings for both of us, and she had property and jewelry. My mom drained everything. For six, maybe seven years, Rosa tried to keep the family drug empire afloat. 
Well, I mean, she sold drugs for him still, you know, kept up her, her part of the business. Um, she just didn't do it for too long, you know, she wasn't too good at it. I think, I mean, it's hard for a woman, you know, to have the power that a man can, especially in that kind of world. And I just think, you know, it's like people were burning her and it just wasn't working the way it was with my dad. Just, it was different. Um, her brother taking all the money and not giving her anything. He's the one that did it because he was her main contact here was her brother. And yeah, he ditched her. But her brother was an addict. So it's like, makes sense. <laughs> but all my mom's family was involved. And my dad's was, but they were more like the business part. And my mom's were more the drug part. When my mom stopped, everything stopped. They moved in with Leticia's grandparents in San Antonio. She was gone. She took it real hard after my dad passed. My mom was really young and she didn't know how to deal with it. And she found her, um, what is it, her release in the bottle. And she became an alcoholic for many, many years. She would leave me at home and come back after a few days, take off five to six days and go have a blast, come back, um, recuperate from her hangover, and then take me on shopping sprees. I'd go blow whatever I wanted. It didn't matter. Um, money was endless. It was like, whatever you want to buy, just go. Around that time, Hollywood came calling. Clint Eastwood came to San Antonio and uh, was interested in the Carrasco story. Several other movie producers and so forth came and wanted to see if they could get the rights to the film. Well, what she did was that she signed a contract and they had a place called Rosie's Cantina here in San Antonio. Yeah, and so she was the hostess with the mostess. Well, everyone wanted a piece of the action at that point. Hollywood was here. They were gonna, one company wanted to use uh, Charles Bronson to play Carrasco. Eastwood started talking to people and ultimately decided that uh, he couldn't play Carrasco. So he really wasn't interested at that time to make a film without him starring in it. Hollywood producers still dream of the riches they could earn by making the movie of Fred and Rosa Carrasco. It hasn't happened. Yet. But the Corridos kept coming. And then there's Camelia La Tejana, a fictional drug smuggler from San Antonio who offs her man when he threatens to leave her. She first showed up in the classic 1977 song by Los Tigres del Norte, Contrabando y Tracion, Contraband and Treason. There was also a telenovela called Camelia La Tejana. Folks like Greg Barrios are convinced the fictional Camelia was inspired by Rosa, a flower of a different name. There were other corridos by uh, well-known uh, Mexican stars who told the legend in a fictional way. And then there were a series of Mexican movies that told the story of Carrasco, and especially of Rosa, who became this character, Camelia. Meanwhile, Leticia's older sister, Lorraine, was struggling. She couldn't let go of her resentment for Carrasco, her stepfather. Yeah, my sister despited him because of that. And she had a lot of anger. 
And I believe that's why she was the way she was. Really just angry, you know. Uh, when we got back into the States, she was 13. Yeah, she was 13, and she started using drugs instantly. Heroin. Lorraine was still a girl, and she was hooked on the same drug that had earned her stepdad millions. The thing that I find uh, interesting is the fact that they would get hooked on heroin. I mean, there's no irony in that. I think it's tragic that, you know, this drug lord's family would wind up being users. She was lost. And I think it was because of everything that happened that she kept using, you know, trying to cover up those feelings of not enough, inadequate, abandonment issues. My sister became a heroin addict at the age of 13. She had her son at the age of 14 and continued to use the whole time. Rosa and Lorraine, mother and daughter, were both addicts. Even Leticia, the little sister, followed their path. She became addicted too. And then something kind of amazing happened. I think she was 30 when she got clean. Detox and Narcotics Anonymous changed Lorraine's life. Getting sober was hard. It took a long time. But Lorraine stuck with it. And she kept going to the meetings, kept going to the meetings, still, you know, under the influence because they would give her medication there. But she would say that she would look down the window, right? And she would see these people walk out and they were happy. You know, she would see them joking and like get into their own cars and drive away. And just like, wow, maybe one day that could be me. And that became her. Rosa was watching her daughter's progress, her new lease on life. Lorraine gave Rosa something she hadn't had in a long time. Hope. You know, she thought maybe it was possible that she could get clean too. She started seeing something in my sister that like, Wow, can't believe she's actually doing something different. My sister's the one that helped both of us to get clean um, because we started seeing the change in her and we thought just maybe, right? Maybe that would work for us too. And I believe that that's, you know, my sister would tell my mom, the war's over, Rosie, you don't have to fight no more. You know, just surrender, Rosie, surrender. And she finally did, August 7th of 2001. That was the last day Rosa Carrasco used drugs. Lorraine had helped her mom and her sister go clean, but she wasn't done there. Lorraine had a message to take to the world. She ended up, you know, speaking all over, um, everywhere. You know, we, we call them circuit speakers, right, where they speak all over the place. And she was able to reach a lot of people. You know, like I said, she had, you know, sponsees, you know, in, in South Africa, um, in Mexico, just everywhere. People that she would help so they could get clean too. And I think because of the story, right, of where we come from, a lot of people saw it as evidence that this program worked, you know, because uh, we've seen some of the people that, you know, she would run with that would sell drugs and their daughters or their granddaughters have come in. And, you know, one of them I remember, she said, my grandfather, you know, he thinks you are full of shit. He thinks you are just playing around that you're really not clean. And she was like, come to my house. Like, this is the real deal. But he couldn't get it because, I mean, where he came from, you know, he was still out in the game. And how could we change? How could my mother be in this program, you know? Yeah, she got to help a lot of people out, you know, by coming into this program. And like I said, she died with 21 years clean. We just celebrated her 22nd anniversary, March the 6th. And she became a beautiful woman, you know, that was able to help a lot of people to 
get this new way of life, you know, of being clean and being a daughter, being a mother, being a sister, uh, because a lot of those things get lost when you're in your active addiction. And she got to help these people, you know, uh, and those people are helping other people now today because of her. Believe it or not, Lorraine went to the very place her dad had been so determined to leave. Yeah, she went back to Huntsville, which was amazing. You know, she got to go into the walls and she got to go share her experience, strengths, and hope to let them know that, that her stepdad had been in there and, uh, you know, look at the place where she gets to be now. So yeah, she got to go carry the message into Huntsville, got to see the bullet holes. And it was crazy because they were giving her a tour and, and she was like, yep, I know this very well. Lorraine also spoke at a women's prison named after Carrasco's hostage, Linda Woodman, the librarian who later became a warden. Because of everything we went through, yeah, we've been able to turn it around and help people instead of harming people. Lorraine, the person she became, not the person she was. She was a very angry, hateful person until she found Narcotics Anonymous. Uh, she became very forgiving. We tried, you know, to have the best relationship we could. You know, she became uh, my role model, right? I looked up to her because of the things she was doing. Uh, I got clean because of her. My mom got clean because of her, you know, and like who would have thought some heroin junkie, you know, would have been able to change our lives the way she did. But she changed our lives, you know. Our kids get to see something different because of the change she made. Uh, my grandson has never seen me high. Uh, my, my, grand, my mother's great-grandkids have never seen her high, you know, because that one choice my sister made. 21 years ago that she decided to change her life, it impacted everybody's life. And then her grandkids, you know, my mom's grandkids, right, which is our children, you know, they got to see the transformation. They got to see where we were all using and where we all got clean. So they know that there's a way out of addiction. Rosa Carrasco died on April 8th, 2020. She was 72 years old. Rosa had been clean for almost 19 years. Oh, she loved him till the day she died. She kept telling my daughter, you know, I'm gonna go see Grandpa Fred. Till the day she died, you know, she loved my dad. I think that's why she never got remarried, you know, because of the love she had for him. And it was one of those Romeo and Juliet stories that she loved him and she loved him till the very end. Just seven months later, on November 16th, 2020, Lorraine passed away. She was 55. The cause of death was brain cancer. Did I ever think, you know, that they would be gone? No. My mom, we saw it coming because they told us. She has less than a year to live and we knew it. But my sister was a shock. You know, from one minute to the next, you know, she was gone. But I got to take care of both of them, you know, to the very end. Uh, I did hospice with both of them and... That was the gift, I believe, you know, that I got to give both of them. I got to take care of them till their last breath, you know. Rosa kept watching her back until the day she died. She worried the police would come for her again. While grieving for her mom and her big sister, Leticia felt it was finally time to tell the family's story. She had a lot of fear, and, and I see why, you know, because it's a hard thing, you know, to have lived it and to speak about it. You know, it's hard for me, and I mean, I lived part of it, you know, not the whole thing the way she did. So I get to see where, you know, the paranoia, the scariness of this can be, you know, but I think that it's time, you know, for people to know the whole truth, not just part of it, because we know just what happened in the prison. <laughs>
You know, they were both good people and they found a way out, you know, and for them that was the answer. And when you're in that game, you know, a lot of stuff comes with it. And the one thing I can tell you, my mom found peace and peace that no money could buy because my mom had tons and tons and tons of money, you know. There's no telling how much money they had. And she didn't have what she had at the end. She had love, she had peace, she had tranquility. None of that stuff money could buy. Wasn't important, you know, having all that money. Cause you know, at the end of the day, all I wanted was love. It's all I wanted. I didn't want the maids, I didn't want the mansions. Just wanted their love and their time and something that we couldn't have. At least, not until the end. Leticia lives on the outskirts of San Antonio in a tidy neighborhood of modest brick homes. We sat at her kitchen table as she told me her family's story. When I got up to leave, I noticed the living room wall. There was this big painting of her parents, Rosa in a red dress, long lashes and wavy brown hair. Fred is wearing a dapper gray suit. He's got one arm around his wife. The other hand is clenched in a fist, defiant even then. Not long after my conversation with Leticia, I went back to Huntsville, back to the Walls unit. Whether you consider Fred a hero or a villain or somewhere in between, you can't escape the truth. The Huntsville siege was an awful, bloody episode from history. Carrasco took the lives of Judy Stanley and Von Besseda, good people who suffered and died, leaving their kids without their mother, simply because Carrasco couldn't do the time. It's been half a century almost since he tried and failed to leave the prison on his own terms. Ignacio Cuevas was the third conspirator in the library siege, the one who fainted during the final confrontation with lawmen. In 1991, Cuevas was executed right here in the state of Texas death chamber. The library is still here. So is the ramp outside the library door. If you know where to look, you can still see chips in the concrete from all the bullets flying during the shootout. And I'm told there are still bullet holes in an electrical panel right beside the front door. Prison officials wouldn't let me in to see the place for myself. So I stood outside on the sidewalk. The barrier that wraps around the entire prison really is daunting. It looms 32 feet high, like nothing I'd seen before. Solid red brick, the color of blood, so imposing, it's hard to believe Carrasco ever thought he had a chance of getting out. But who knows? We were fishing when we got the news over the portable radio. We were fishing here that night. Man, I felt bad, you know? I thought, oh man, they killed the guy, you know? And here I said, I didn't even know him, man, but I felt bad. Like when a family member gets killed, Pete Torres is the Vietnam vet who saw Fred Carrasco as the Robin Hood of San Antonio. Pete has his own ideas of what really happened. When he staged that 11-day uh, siege at Huntsville, he got that out of a storybook, man. He put together a plan. However, when the last part of it, they used those water cannons on him. They knocked him off his feet. You know, and that's what I tell everybody. I said, I don't know, man. 
It says that that was a Texas Ranger that ran up on him, fired his face up. And why did he have to fire him twice in the face? And everybody says, to destroy his face? Exactly. That wasn't him. He paid his way out. My theory, he paid his way out. He got one of, they, they got talked to one of those guys that, you know, uh, how you say, uh, uh, loser in, in the uh, prison life, you know. He was destined to be there forever. And possibly they made him a deal. Look, you, you look like the man, we're gonna dress you up and you get in there and you're gonna get killed. But your family will be taken care of forever and ever because you're never leaving here alive. You know, this is your best shot in the guy. I, I, like I say, I'm not an educated man, but I, from day one, man, I started saying that, man. If you think about it, one way or another, Carrasco lives on. If I were to run into him, I'd raise my glass, you know, and say more power to him, man. I think he's alive and well and hiding in Argentina. <laughs> Standoff is a production of Imperative Entertainment. It was written and created by me, Wes Ferguson. Executive producer and story editor is Jason Hoke. Audio editing and sound engineering by Shane Freeman and Jason Hoke. Original score for Standoff by Max Baca, with additional music from Flaco Jimenez on accordion. Music engineering by Tony Gonzalez. Our main theme, Huntsville, is performed by Ray Benson and was originally released on the Merle Haggard and the Strangers 1971 album, Someday We'll Look Back. Cover art and design by Gina Sullivan. Carrasco audio tapes from the Texas Department of Corrections, courtesy of the Texas State Library and Archives Commission. Special thanks to the staff of the Texas Prison Museum for their generous help with research materials. The Corridos, La Muerte de Fred Gomez Carrasco, El Nuevo Corrido de Fred Gomez Carrasco, El Corrido de Rosa Carrasco, and El Corrido de Alfredo Carrasco are published by San Antonio Music Publishers Incorporated and are courtesy of DLB Records. Special thanks to Eastside Music Studios in Austin, Texas. Have questions? Contact us at podcasts at imperativeentertainment.com. If you love the show, tell your friends, and don't forget to leave us a review. Thanks for listening. San Antonio writer Greg Barrios passed away during the production of this podcast, as did William T. Harper, author of 11 Days in Hell. I hope this show honors their memory. That old white-haired judge in Dallas Didn't pay my story no mind Taking me down to Huntsville I'm bringing in a load of time They caught me on a caper that I planned for days And proved everything I'd done I'm my way to Huntsville But I'm looking for a chance to run Hands don't fit, no chopping pole And cotton never was my way You better keep both eyes on me Or they're gonna lose old Ray It ain't so far to Mexico To 
that I can't find my way. Taking me down to Huntsville, but I'm not gonna stay. I guess they got a good excuse They know I'm gonna run the first chance I get Cause they never gonna cut me loose And I don't care if they shoot me down I'll never be free again I've got two long lives Terms to do, both running into end. Hey, it ain't so far to Mexico that I can't find my way. They're taking me down to Huntsville. I'm not gonna stay. The Bigger Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.